morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. It's your science on a Sunday with me. My name is Eleanor and I have some friends in the studio with me as per usual. Uh, I am joined by our resident dinosaur expert, Mitchell. Hi, how are we going? And we have a new face in the studio today. Uh, we're also joined by Thomas. Hello, everyone. Uh, so before we get into today's topic, which I think in light of perhaps some of the darker themes that have been running through 2016 of late. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to be talking about lovely things like colour and light and the, the beauty of the natural world, particularly why animals have beautiful colours and what kind of function those colours play and how they came to exist. Uh, so before we get into that, uh, Thomas, you're new to the Fuzziologic Studios. You're a PhD student in biochemistry. Can you tell us a bit about... What do you do? So my project's working on lipid production in plants and the mechanisms by which plants produce oils and trying to uh, tailor that to biofuel and industrial needs, things like that. Okay, so you're basically modifying plants to uh, improve their production of useful things. Yeah, so it's uh, part of a broader field called metabolic engineering. Okay, so rather than engineering just one protein it's more about engineering the whole organism a pathway within an organism to function to produce a particular thing uh say in this case uh oils like you have uh, aromatic eucalyptus oils and stuff like that more or like canola oil more like fats like canola oil yeah okay, okay. or just or just really greasy grass <laughs> and so what, what are some pretty of the close to the actual project <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the applications of this kind of work well Actually, as Mitchell was saying, it's trying to increase oil production within the leaves of plants with the intention of having the greater biomass that you have in the leaf of a, a plant rather than just the seed and using that for oil production rather than just the seed. Okay, yeah. cool. So a way of producing more of something that's useful in terms of feeding people? or In terms of feeding people, but primarily probably in terms of uh, producing biofuel uh, precursors without a reliance on things like palm oil. Okay. Yeah, so, like, you harvest all your canola crop and then you shred up the rest of the plant and use it for fuel for yeah, cars that's it. and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Saving the world, mm. one greasy leaf at a time. Using every part of the buffalo plant. <laughs> using use, Is that a, a saying, using every part of the You're, buffalo? Using every part of the buffalo, yeah, that's oh. a thing. I, I haven't heard that well, phrase when, before. Yeah, there's not many buffaloes in Australia. So. I had a fight with my housemate last night about the phrase hiding your light under a bushel because he... Because he made that saying up? No, it's no? a real saying. Oh, okay. Um, and he, yeah, but he hadn't heard the use of the word bushel in its sort of ancient form to mean a bowl uh, yeah. rather than a unit of measurement. A half barrel to put, mm. to put apples in. Yeah. Yeah. That's completely unrelated to anything. Yeah, okay. Great. Uh, apples, apples, apples. How much oil is there in apples? Not very much. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Apples are red, though, and and colours is what we're here to talk about. Oh, yeah, and then they change colour when they're ripe, so you know when to eat them. I think, is that is that an evolutionary feature of an apple? It's an evolutionary feature of fruits in general to signal when they're ripe so that the yeah. seeds are at the stage of development where they're not going to be digested by the animal but pass through them. Yeah. So, well, like, the seed's not ready if the little bird comes along and eats the little berry before the seeds are ready to go, then the plant's stuffed. So it has it? to. So plants develop these signals 
for when the seeds are, are all good and ready to be spread. That's exactly right. It's the opposite of traffic lights. Green <laughs> means stop and red means go. Correlates to the breakdown of longer starches and things like that into sweet sugars and the loss of uh, not very tasty things like tannins and bitter chemicals. Yeah. Evolution's crazy. It's pretty it's pretty neat. The first the first thing that I, I wanted to sort of start our discussion about light and colour was was about that idea of evolution and how plants and animals developed colour in the first place and what sort of roles colour plays in the world around us. Because I guess it's something that sometimes we take for granted. We look around and see, you know, beautiful green trees and blue sky and it's pretty, all very pretty flowers. Beautiful flowers and those octopuses with the bright blue spots on them. I see those every day. Yeah, you come across <laughs> them on the commute in all the time. Yep. But, you know, birds and stuff, birds, they have colours. Birds are very but why? colourful. Why do they have colours, Mitchell? Yeah, uh, for a multitude of different reasons. Okay. Um, and you just, like, got me going on this whole other brain thing about what what colours were there before anything had eyes. What colours were there the before colour TV? Yeah, right? Like... <laughs> Was it like that episode of Arnie, ja- Arnie Jack where the light, where the eye evolved and all this colour just drained into the world? I, I um, haven't seen that, but I suspect that it wasn't. <laughs> probably not. Um, yeah, so colour is used for a multitude of different things. Uh, one of my one of the one of my favourite things that colour is used for is not being seen. Camouflage. Camouflage is excellent in Crypsis. I have, I have, yes, Crypsis. Crypsis. Which is a really cool word. And it's, it's one it, I hadn't come across. It's so much fun. Uh, making yourself look like something else. Mm, mimicry. Mimicry, uh, as well as camouflage in general, which I'm sure is a word that everybody's familiar with. So I did some reading about camouflage and this guy called Sir Edward Bagnall Poulton. That's a great name. Uh, he, was, he was a cool guy. He wrote a book called The Color of Animals uh, in the 1890s, in 1890, in fact. Uh, Only 90s kids will remember this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he he basically classified four different types of camouflage, uh, which I think was quite interesting. So he uh, established four different types. The first is protective resemblance, which is crypsis. So this is where something that's... Don't eat me because I look like a stick and sticks aren't good to eat. Exactly. So I am am a stick. I am a leaf on the wind. Yep. Uh, Oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh, And and don't eat me because I'm disguised. Mm. So obviously that has a very strong evolutionary advantage. Mm -hmm. If you look like another thing that isn't likely to get eaten... Uh, you won't get eaten, and hence you can pass that property on to your offspring. And so that's why we have stick insects and things. Mm-hmm. I was reading about stick insects pretty recently and about how they have lost one of a lot of the organs that they have and have very compressed uh, interiors of their bodies, and uh, it just really messes up with their uh, physiological functioning just for the sake of avoiding being eaten. So you've got an example of where evolution is driving something that doesn't seem like it's fitness, which is losing a, an organ or two. Um, <laughs> just just like get rid of a jettison an organ or two yeah. that you don't necessarily need. Just so you look like a branch of a tree uh, because that's more important than being able to... Not being eaten, eaten is more important than not being able to breathe twice as well. <laughs> There, there are a few examples of that that we'll probably get to a bit later on, but what were you saying, Mitchell? I was going to say something that w- I noticed in the news not too long ago was um, tree lobsters. 
What a, what which, a tree lobsters. Which is a, a common name that I love so much. The Lord Howe Island stick insect. Okay. Uh, this year, this year, February this year, mm. um, were bred successfully in the US for the first time. Okay. Hmm. Which is, you know, Lord Howe Island stick insects have been struggling a lot with the introduction of, introdu- introduction of uh, things like rats into Lord Howe Island. Sure. Um, uh, great big flightless fat. Well, they're called tree lobsters instead of stick insects. Because, so they, because they're big, fat, chunky uh, stick insects. Lobster-looking things. Lobster things. That's really they're cool. They're actually um, completely so, extinct from Lord Howe Island itself for uh, since the introduction of rats to it. And then they were found uh, on a rocky outcrop that's maybe 20 k's away from the island that's uh, just a spire in the middle of the ocean called Ball's Pyramid. And there was a rock climbing trip there with people trying to be the first people to claim the ascent up it. And then they found these weird-looking stick insects that looked more like lobsters. They took a couple of samples back and actually started the conservation effort. And then as a consequence of them finding it, uh, rock climbing was banned on Ball's Pyramid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great story. That's lovely. Well, that's that's kind of nice and and cyclical. So does that mean they are the only holders of that record? That they were the only the people only who... only people ever to claim that. No, I think Dick Smith did it as well, actually. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like something he'd do. Yeah. Before his electronics goes broke. <laughs> Climb a rock, save a species. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that's crypsis. That's that's looking like a thing so you don't get eaten. Then there's aggressive resemblance. Yep. Uh, can you figure out from... Uh, yeah. So, for example, like coral snakes or other mimicry where I know there's a few butterflies that do this. Mm. There's a few species that resemble monarch butterflies, which are super, super poisonous. So Mm. it's like, hey, I don't look like a stick, but I look like this other really nasty thing that if you eat, you will die. I'm definitely one of those. So that's called aposematism. Oh, damn. Yeah. Aggressive mimicry. Aggressive mimicry is still camouflage. Is it when it has eyes on it? No. So aggressive... Aggressive... Um, resemblance is animals that blend in so they can eat other animals. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's like the opposite. So rather than defensive camouflage, it's offensive camouflage. So like tigers. Yeah. Yeah. So animals, predators that disguise themselves or uh, resemble their surroundings so as they can sneak up on things better. Okay. So that's the second type in his classification. Like the the fish that live on the bottom of the ocean look like muck and then they open their mouth and suck things into them. Yeah, Yeah. like those. Yep. Or death adders, like they just sit there until something runs over them and bites them. Yeah. And they bite (laughs) And they bite bite it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's aggressive resemblance. Then there's advantageous protection, which is adorable. That's animals that build their own disguises out of rocks and leaves and things. Oh. So like collector crabs. Yeah. Um, that cover their shells with sponges and seaweed and things, um, basically disrupting the line of their shape so that predators can't easily distinguish them yep. amongst the background. Um, I just thought of another example of that. Um, there's a Amazonian spider that builds a, builds a scarecrow out of like junk and leaves and stuff, right. builds a big fake spider in the middle of its web, even though it's a little tiny spider. That's awesome. So that, it, uh, so that birds don't swoop out and pick it out of its web and stuff. That's really cool. Which is a bit cool. I think dragonfly larvae might do it as well. Yeah, and caddisflies. Caddisfly larva. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. You guys know too much about fly larva. Yeah, well, they're cool. They're that weird little cool. bugs. Um, 
there's um some really beautiful if you want to look at something really really pretty seeing speaking of pretty beautiful things mm. um there's an artist that made some beautiful artwork by giving caddis fly lava which build little nests out of cool junk they find at the bottom of a river mm. putting them in a tank with like pearls and gold leaf and stuff okay so these caddis fly lava built these little beautiful jewel assemblages oh that's really awesome it's very pretty. so instead of using sort of naturally occurring rocks and sticks and things they, they use jewelry ah yeah sweet it's pretty not, pretty not, cool not something you'd find in nature necessarily but but cool to blend that art and science yeah oh, that's and nice. taking something that people would usually go oh gross bug and yeah, making it into gross. something beautiful mm. Mm. another pretty common example around the gardens of a lot of people would be uh leaf color spiders that look like they're a, they just look like there's a leaf stuck in a spider web, but lo and behold right inside it there's a spider that's ne- uh that's grabbed the leaf Curled it closed and then sort of cross-stitched it with web to keep it in a uh, sealed position. That's really cool. It's amazing that, that everybody these go everybody develop. go look for those in your gardens. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So that's the third type. That's advantageous protection. Um, and then the fourth type is variable variable protective resemblance. So the word variable there should be a clue. It means that it changes a lot. Yeah. So stuff like chameleons and octopuses. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, cephalopods. Yeah. So yeah. things that change their color either for the purpose of camouflage or for signaling purposes or communication purposes. So things that can actually control the color that they are. Yeah. Which I think we'll talk about a bit more. The mimic octopus would be the champion of that. The mimic octopus. Yeah. Can look like other octopuses. Well, the mimic octopus is this beautiful, I'm pretty sure they're from Southeast Asia. Mm. Um, but they have multiple different strategies for dealing with different predators. So, like, here comes this weird fish that's going to eat me. I'm going to look like a flounder and swim away. Oh, but this is a big eel. I'm going to look like this poisonous starfish thing. And it's got all these different strategies depending on which predators are coming out to investigate it and can change into all... Like, one of the things that it does is put four of its tentacles out the front and four of its tentacles out the back and (laughs) look black and white and stripy and look like a sea snake. snake. Yeah. That's amazing. So it's got all these different strategies for looking like different things. And if you see one that mm. looks like a mimic octopus, it's probably two mimic octopuses. Really? No. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they've got all these different strategies for dealing with different predators. That's really cool. It's pretty fantastic. I like it. Yeah. I think um, boars can also change their colour according to their mood as well. Um, but... Boars? Yeah. As in like the pigs. pigs. Like if they're really angry. Oh, oh the, cool. I guess blood flow to the skin yeah. might yeah. increase and flush them. And like if they're not actually... Sometimes they do it when they're not actually reflecting that emotion and it's uh, that's not exactly what the pig meant. Oh. God damn. <laughs> oh, man. We walked right into that one. Thomas, yes. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic, where yep. you belong. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Um, I was going to say something. It was really important. Yeah. Um, oh, about um, blood flushing, pigment changing, yep. stegosaurus spines. Yeah, stegosaurus that's thing, plates. Right? Uh, that's a thing in uh, in walking with dinosaurs. Okay, so tell tell the listeners what what misconception I might have. Uh, that's then... all right. Uh, it's something that's you know depending on who you ask, you get different answers about. So everybody everybody has a vague idea of what stegosaurus looks like. It's a big dinosaur with all those big flat things sticking out of its back and the spikes on the end of its tail. Yes, really small, dopey little head. Mm. Uh, and those plates have uh, a really intricate, massive network of blood vessels that run over the surface of them. Mm. And so in Jurassic, 
what am I saying? In Walking with Dinosaurs, they propose that this is used as a threat display. Okay. Because red is a color that's used a lot in threat displays. Red belly, black snakes, red back spiders. Mm. Red's an angry color. Red means, hey, if you come mess with me, you will not, you will be the worst for the wear for it. Mm. Um, those spikes on the end of Stegosaurus's tail are very, very dangerous. Hey, come near me. I'll put these in you. And so, so the, the it was proposed that was they proposed would flush that those... they would flush those plates with blood, and make themselves look very, very big and scary. Hmm. Uh, but you also have Stegosaurus plates that have bite marks in them, so there is definitely Stegosaurs that are getting attacked. Yeah. By predat- by uh, by predatory dinosaurs. And if they are getting attacked, they're getting attacked at a time when they have a lot of blood flowing out to these extremities. So, yeah, that doesn't seem like sensible design. Yeah. Um, so maybe it could have been, maybe it wasn't. Uh, it's a cool idea. Yeah. But in general, dinosaurs are very big, flashy animals. And when you see something in nature that doesn't make a huge amount of sense, it's probably for helping you get boyfriend or a girlfriend yeah i was gonna say it sounds like it might have been a sexual selection yeah yeah because a lot of times those those sorts of um, sexual selection colors or or markings or features are actually sort of detrimental to you surviving yeah 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 you stick out like a sore thumb yeah uh yeah it's also been suggested it's for you know it's great big solar panels on its back (laughs) Or for helping itself cool down, warming up or cooling down. Yeah. But you do see other much larger animals in the same habitat that don't have these massive specialized structures, at least as far as we can tell, for doing that. So. So it's still a bit of a mystery what the, what the red stegosaurus blades were all about. Yeah. Uh, a whole heap of people thinking lots of different things. And it's an animal that's been extinct for 150 million years, so you might not ever know. Well, that's really cool. Let's let's go to a track for a bit. So this is Catamaran by the Alalas. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX. That was Catamaran by the Alalas. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX. It's your science on a Sunday. My name's Eleanor. I'm in the studio with Mitchell. Hello. And Thomas. Hi. Uh, we're talking about pretty colours today uh, because sometimes on a Sunday morning you just need to think about things that are nice and pleasant. Something and... to brighten up your life. Aww. So Aww. we're talking about light and colour in nature and, and why animals or plants have particular colours, uh, what sort of function those colours play and how they evolved. Uh, and I think we were just about to start talking at length about dinosaurs because Mitchell likes things that lived a long time ago. I do. Uh, and... I think one of the one of the things with dinosaurs is that when you open like a kid's picture book about dinosaurs, a lot of the time they're sort and of you pull out all your pencils <laughs> to color them in. You you go through the greens and browns, right? Yep. They're just like big lizards. Yep. So there's a lot of sort of generic olive colored dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate representation of how dinosaurs may have looked? Well, as I was saying before, you do have a lot of dinosaurs with these big elaborate structures. From what we can tell from the fossil record, they are very showy animals. Mm. So you think about, you know, Triceratops with that massive crest. You think about all these duck-billed dinosaurs with all these crests on their heads and theropod dinosaurs with crests. And now coming out more than ever is are dinosaurs with great big elaborate wing feathers and tail feathers and all these great big flashy showy structures. Mm. And if they're all grey, <laughs> that's dumb. What's the point? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite thing, one of my favorite things to say about dinosaur color is when you're coloring them in, do whatever you want. Nobody can tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> Except. Except. When they've got feathers. Unless. Unless. Um, during the song, 
Tommy was Tommy asked me, "Do we know what color dinosaurs are? Uh, we know what color we we know what color some dinosaurs were, and we know what colors dinosaurs with feathers can't be." Sure. Which is really cool. Okay, elaborate. Um, so feathers don't break down very easily. Mm. That's why we fill our pillows with them. They don't rot and stink. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so you can get... I've had some pillows in my time. <laughs> well, uh, imagine how fast a pillow full of skin would rot and stink. Yeah, that's a good mental image. Yeah, that's yeah. a really gross mental I'm sorry. I'm sorry for destroying our pretty lovely I can show see, with I that can image. See the cogs pretty in... thick skin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I was literally about to say I can see the cogs in Thomas's head <laughs> trying to come up with a pun. Like his <laughs> eyes glaze over a little bit like, hang on, almost there. I've got almost something there. Here. Yeah. yeah. It worked. Um, it was feathers good. feathers don't break down very easily. So they preserve really well on the fossil record. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes you can, if you get a particularly well-preserved feather, the pigment structures are still preserved inside that feather. Okay. So you can get out your electron scanning microscopes and all this wonderful new technolo- technological science tools and figure out what colours these feathers were in life. So what colour, you said we know what colours they weren't. Is mm-hmm. there a particular colour that was more difficult to produce or how have we ruled out a colour? Yeah, so with a lot of these feathered dinosaurs... Uh, a lot of them are predatory dinosaurs. Yeah. So when you're getting into the more... And a lot of these things, if you had seen them in life, animals like Velociraptor, they you would have looked at them and gone, wow, that's a really long bird. Mm. They were really, really feathery. Uh, and when you're getting into more birdy dinosaurs, you get a bit few more omnivores. Mm-hmm. But with stuff, with some of the more predatory dinosaurs, we can rule out a few things. So the main in these feathers that we're finding, the main pigment structures that they're using are melanosomes. Yep. So melanin, uh, you can imagine all the different colours that human hair can be. That's basically your colour palette that you're working with for melanosomes. You can get blacks and greys and whites and reds and, well, the rusty kind of gingery reds like Eleanor's hair. <laughs> awesome uh and browns and maybe some blonde okay uh and that's the colors that you're looking at for most of these feathers with modern birds when you see the birds with the bright yellow plumage like the crest on a self-crested cockatoo or Mm. bright reds in crimson rosellas they're not pigments that they're actually making themselves those are carotenoids Ah, like from their diet. From their diet. So they're taking the uh, one the one that everybody would be familiar with is flamingos. Mm. Uh, flamingos get their lovely pink colour from the shrimp that they eat. Yeah. Which the Incidental shri- coloration. Incidental coloration. Mm. Um, so a lot of these predatory dinosaurs not having plant food in their diet mm. are not going to be able to get any of these carat- carotenes. Okay. So you're probably not going to have a bright red, bright yellow, bright orange velociraptor. And another point on... Feather coloration. Uh, interesting fact: uh, an albino budgie is actually blue and white rather than completely white because the blue in an in a bird color uh, in a bird feather is actually as a result of not a pigment but minor structural features of the feather that change the way it diffracts light. Yeah, and this was the next one that I was going to talk about: how you get the blues and greens, mm. which is not a pigment; it's actually structural. Um, and I didn't quite understand how this worked until I looked it up this morning. Um, <laughs> so before, just before we launch into it, yeah, just to like really distinguish between the two. So we've mm-hmm. got we've got Melanin. pigments, yep, that are uh, paint basically paint, and yep. and these are actually molecules that 
absorb a particular wavelength of light. Yep. So just coming at this from the only perspective I understand, which is chemistry, yep. uh, these are actually physical structures that the nature of how the electrons in these molecules sit means that when light, when white light, when sunlight hits these molecules, they absorb a particular wavelength of light. And so we observe whatever colors aren't being absorbed. That's it. So that's the sort of coloration you're talking about with the with the pigments in, in those feathers, those yep. mel- melanins and things. Yep. So now we're moving into structural, structural color. All right. Um, and basically the way this works is, you know, it's, this, it's like your prisms. Mm-hmm. When you're playing with your prisms, when you've got a chandelier and they make all those little, little tiny little Just rainbows out of white light. when you're at light. home playing with your chandelier. Yeah, playing with your prisms. Yeah. Did nobody else do this? <laughs> I had I had a prism, yeah. yeah. I had a prism with a um, with a triceratops in it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, uh, that's, re- that's I, that relevant. That was a weird sort of combination yeah. of sciences, but I um, loved it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and basically, you've got two thin films mm-hmm. that are interacting with light in strange ways. And a really good example of what does this is soap bubbles. Oh, how you get the rainbows on the how surface. How you get the rainbows on the so- soap bubbles is the interaction of light between the two films going into the light bu- into that soap bubble and out again. Mm. You get all those weird little rainbows. And that's how you get blues and purples. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few naturally occurring blue pigments. Is mm. that? Yeah. Yeah. That seems accurate. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in anthocyanins and things like that, in which are the pigments in fruits, mm. they can look, they're mostly red, but when they're present in really high densities sorry, high concentrations, they can start to appear blue. So think of a blueberry or a really, really red grape sort of appearing purple. Mm. Mm. So that's more of a concentration thing than an actual producing a blue pigment. And animals don't tend to produce the two kind of pigments that you see in plants, which are betalins and anthocyanins. They're the main ones that have good reputations for being antioxidants and stuff like that. That's why you got to eat blueberries. Mm. Also because they're yummy. (laughs) Sorry, continue. No, that's all right. I was just going to say animals can eat them, uh, but we don't produce them and we don't use them for body coloration. Yeah, cool. Um, and with your structural colors, uh, you can only have that in your most complex feathers. That You know that ziplock thing that feathers do and you play with them and you can ziplock the little strands together and pull them yes. apart again? Yeah. You need the feathers that can do that to be mm. able to get these structural mm. colors. So T-Rex had fluffy mm. shaggy feathers like baby chickens or okay. emus, Aww. but they didn't have the ziplocking feathers. So they wouldn't have had those real iridescent, iridescent blues and colors. Greens. So, you, but animals like Velociraptor did. So you could have a blue Velociraptor, but not a blue T. Rex. I'm I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that the colors that you get on beetles and things like that, the really iridescent coloration, mm-hmm. all comes from structural features of the really fine crystalline aspects of the chitinous coverings that they have. Yeah, I, I so so, yeah. so one of the types of structural color formation you can get is is different angles of chitin scales. So particularly in insects and butterfly wings and things like that, mm. you've actually got uh, you can have these sort of imagine like a concave mirror yep. uh, of chitin. And so what happens is light will hit the edges of that mirror and bounce in a particular orientation and will hit the center of that mirror and bounce in a different orientation. And that's where you get your constructive and destructive interference, which is what produces those sorts of really vivid colors on butterfly wings and things, uh, because you're rather than it being an inherent pigment or color, you're depending on which angle you view it at, 
you'll you'll see a slightly different set of colors which is why when you hold up a peacock feather or something you get that iridescent that play of color uh, the colors seem to change as you move around relative to the thing you're looking at that's pretty cool chitin's the lightweight armor that a lot of invertebrates have especially insects and fungi actually yeah does fungi have chitin yeah yep yeah as a cell wall isn't it yeah yeah why Wow! Whoa! So that's that's uh, this is this is the ultimate science. That's question. probably like a PhD level question, I think. Fungi are cl- more closely related to animals than they are to plants, so maybe it's got something to do with that. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. There is, um, I found an article about iridescence in plants, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because people have just been studying the iridescence of leaves in lower levels of rainforest. So instead of having that real bright chlorophyll green for photosynthesis up in the canopies, uh, there's species of plants that live further down. They miss out on all the the top best quality light because it gets all absorbed up the top. But they've actually been investigating, these scientists have been investigating the iridescent quality of these leaves. Um, That's pretty cool. They they got to live in the shade. I think the same thing happens with algae in the various different water layers in the ocean because you get, end up with a different range of pigments to help them catch light from uh, from the light that's filtering down through several meters of water is a different spectral it's different color to the uh, light that's at the surface. So as you get deeper, you get things like brown algae, kelp, and stuff like that that can survive with the light that's coming in, uh, whereas you get bright green algae at the top. That's pretty that's really cool. cool. Yeah, so this, this, these iridescent leaves are in the begonia genus. Genius. Genus. The begonia genus. Those mm. are two words that are hard to say strung together. Uh, and so Heather Whitney, who is based at the University of Bristol, uh, wow, published in Nature Plants. Nice one. Uh, Good work. They were studying the iridescence of these begonia species basically found the existence of highly structured organelles, uh, which they named iridoplasts. Uh, and they actually do it using sort of a photonic crystal structure. This is cool. so sci-fi. This is great. I know, but this is just happening in the bottom of rainforests. Uh, and it's like a, a weird sci-fi thing. But yeah, so basically the the organelles, rather than being sort of chloroplasts that are going to, that are our sort of common... Yep. Uh, photosynthesis things up the top of things that make plant green. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. these are iridoplasts, which are once again using that um, structural coloration. So they're capturing light in small structures rather than through the absorbance into particular molecules. I guess. So do these iridoplasts turn light into food the same way that that chloroplasts do, or are they capturing this light to feed it to chloroplasts or something like that? Iridoplasts are structured. They modify the incoming light and make it more available for photosynthesis. Okay. So they must be basically taking wavelengths that wouldn't normally be available to plant leaves and converting it into the wavelength that is useful for useful. chloroplasts. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's kind of awesome. Quantum leaves. How good are plants? Plants are pretty good. Uh, let's go to another track, actually, uh, before I forget. So... This is a throwback to the 90s because I've only been listening to 90s playlists the last couple of weeks. Uh, so this is Brimful of Asher by Corner Shop. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. That was Brimful of Asher by Corner Shop. 
Uh, throwback to the 90s there. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX. Uh, we're talking about color and light. My name's Eleanor. I've got Mitchell. Hello. And Thomas. Morning. Uh, and just before that song, we were talking about this study that's been published in Nature Plants recently about this newly uh, discovered or, or identified structure in particular plant leaves uh, called iridoplasts. And during the song, Thomas did a bit more research and can and can reveal a bit more information about that. So the iridoplast is actually a modified sort of uh, chloroplast. There's in plants we've got a lot of weird and wonderful different types of chloroplasts that you use for different things. There's some called chromoplasts, they're colourful. There's some called leucoplasts, which contain starch. And if it's got the name plast in it, it means that it's probably um, a modified, souped-up chloroplast that does something new. That's really cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And also during the song, Mitchell started waffling on about putting sunscreen on budgies. Yeah. So I think what we're going to talk about in this this last link of the show is how animals perceive colour and light. Uh, and this somehow is relevant to budgies. Budgies, Yeah. Um, so UV light especially is something that's really interesting that a lot of animals can see that we can't, mm. like the birds and the bees. Aww. Speaking Ugh. of birds and bees, you can use sunscreen to make budgies less sexy. I mean, I, I've i never really looked at a budgie and kind of gone, mm, yeah. Uh, well, budgies <laughs> find budgies sexy okay. is the thing here. Uh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, and you know those little cheek spots that you've got on budgies' cheeks? Yeah. They also have bright UV spots, UV reflective spots on their cheeks as well. Okay. That are really important for mate selection in budgies. How bright and beautiful you are helps you get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Mm. And if you, you can, and people testing uh, how well different animals can see light, use sunscreen a lot. Okay. Because sunscreen is really good at absorbing UV light. If you have a photo of a person's face with a UV camera and they've got half of it rubbed with sunscreen, that half looks completely black. Okay, so mm. the sunscreen's actually absorbing all the, all UV, the UV light. light. Yeah. yeah. So if you paint uh, sunscreen over these UV spots on the budgies, then they don't reflect any of that UV light and go, oh, they're a bit drab and boring. Ah, oh, so you can make them a whole lot less appealing. Make them a whole, make them a whole lot less appealing. I yeah. often feel less appealing when I'm covered in sunscreen, but I think that's just because like grit <laughs> sticks to it. Yeah, and you get get all, get all greasy. Yeah. yeah. Mm, grease. On the topic of uh, being appealing and UV light, um, <laughs> onto solariums. No, um, <laughs> we're going to so flowers. A lot of flowers that look uh, comparatively blank when you look at them uh, with a the human normal human set of vision when you look at them with a bird or a insect uh vision that has that extra uh, thing called an opsin that lets you see a particular color uh they can actually see these uv patterns on the uh flower that kind of act like a landing strip or arrows that are pointing to the center of the flower pollen here pollen here exactly or nectar and then mm. with a plant co-opting the insect to carry the pollen somewhere else wow yeah. so so there's sort of this hidden world that that we can't necessarily perceive but mm. but other creatures can mm. um i think one of the real interesting examples of that kind of thing is the mantis shrimp which is yeah. kind of the go-to animal of choice for nerds uh talking about what stuff can see yeah, yeah. so mantis shrimp are kind of incredible tiny creatures that have incredibly powerful, speedy claws. Pow- powerful little claws. Um, yeah, one of the one of their common names that they've speaking of common names again. Um, thumb splitters. 
is a pretty good one. Uh, also, Prawn Killers. Prawn Killers. Prawn Killers. Do they kill prawns? They do kill prawns. Well, I mean, it's an apt name then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so they're these beautiful, like, if they're these beautiful, gorgeous, little, weird crustaceans. They're really friends. colourful and they lovely. They are very, really, they are very beautiful. If you haven't heard of a mantis shrimp before, get onto Google Images and just look up mantis shrimp because they are kind of savage with these little claws or bommy knockers that they have for their mandibles. Mm. These big googly eyes and very, very pretty. Uh, and whereas we have three photoreceptors in our eyes, uh, red, green, and blue. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, four. We've four. Got, uh, three that work in high light. Oh, yeah. And then one that works in, in low, low light. light. Yeah. So that's, that's why you hear about dogs having bad color vision is because they invest more in this low light, uh, photoreceptor. And I think in, they've only got color. two overall, don't they? Yeah, I think they're missing one of the other ones. Uh, the green one? It's hard to say what a dog would actually see. Yeah. I've read read that that they're missing the green one. I remember reading a children's book about confusing a dog by throwing a green ball onto a lawn. Yeah, okay. Mm. Um, And that's where I get all my scientific evidence from. Children's children's books. books. It was a children's science book. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think, yeah, primates are weird because they can see the green one because it helps us identify ripe leaves and fruit. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. I think think it's something like that. Uh, But yeah, mantis shrimp have 16 different photoreceptors so they can just see all these weird wonderful wacky things that we're not noticing which is kind of brilliant uh people talk about how beautiful and amazing the human eye is but compared to mantis shrimps we're rubbish we got nothing we got nothing on mantis shrimps well the other really cool thing about mantis shrimp eyes is they can tune their low the long wavelengths of light to depending on the water depth and light quality and stuff they can literally tune their eyes into different frequencies so they can specifically look for particular types of light. Yeah, they can go. Oh, you know, you know oh, transition lenses, basically. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> like built-in transition lenses. It's called awesome. spectral tuning, which is also just a really cool phrase. The interesting thing about the pigments that we use for vision, which are called uh, opsins, is that it's the same at the core of it. It's the same thing that's derived from vitamin A called retinol, and it's the surrounding. Uh, kind of shell of protein that's really interesting to Eleanor and I um, that changes the wavelength that it absorbs that. So it's the same. Actually, if you have purified the chemical in the middle of it, it will always be the same color, and it just depends on the environment that you put it in. You can fine-tune it, but not the way that a shrimp can. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Does that mean that one day we can uh, chemically engineer our eyes to see different colors? Let's hope so. That'd be cool. That'd but, be that'd be something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that would be a thing. Yeah, that, that could happen. Yeah. On uh, the topic of oh, sorry, no, go on the topic of uh, animals that can see outside what normal humans can see. Um, infrared. Yeah. Snakes, pythons especially, have this little thing below their mouth. This uh, sort of thing that runs below their lip line, along their jaw, that lets them sort of find out where something's emitting infrared radiation and sort of track down animals with body heat. Mm. So You can see heat. Apparently, if humans had it, we'd be blinded all the time by our own heat. Really? We're warm-blooded. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it's... I guess it's. I guess that's why we can't see heat. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame. It's awesome to think that there might have been sort of an ancient ancestor of humans who had a mutation that allowed them to sort of see heat and they just 
died because it was horrible <laughs> and that that mutation was lost to us that's that sounds like a long lost x-men it really <laughs> does series so yeah. going back to the mantis shrimp stuff because mm-hmm. uh, there was a study done it's an ongoing study it was back in 2014 it was actually australian researchers based at the university of queensland and they have determined that mantis shrimp can see cancer what yeah uh well hang on most things can see cancer eventually <laughs> if it gets big enough well they can see it when it's they, just individual they can identify it easier patches of cells that are not yet uh, visible to us in a, in a physical sense but they can actually identify well we say mantis shrimp it's actually the fact that mantis shrimp can distinguish between different types of polarized light oh okay mm. so uh light hits us and it's the the wavelengths of light are all in every conceivable direction mm-hmm. uh and one of the things that we can do with something like um those polarized glasses yep. and things you can actually filter out any wavelength of light that isn't in the direction that you that you want it that to be matches mm. up with that that's why when you like tip your head sideways when you're wearing uh, like polarized sunglasses glasses yeah and- Fun fact, you don't actually need the polarised glasses to see the direction of polarised light. Humans have a weird optical phenomenon called Haydinger's brush. Hmm. Uh, And if you look at an LCD screen or a blank patch of the sky and just look um, really closely at the centre of your vision, you'll see this sort of dumbbell-shaped yellow patch surrounded by two blue patches that's extremely faint. Um, Look it up on the internet if you want to know what you're actually supposed to be seeing. And the direction that that's oriented uh, correlates to the direction of the polarized light. I don't. I don't believe what? you. It's, what's it's really? real. What's it's it real. called? Haydinger's brush. Haydinger's brush. Sounds and like sounds like a magical artifact. So you just have to novel. stare at at the sky. Yeah. And and sort of you can filter out. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Thomas okay. is showing us a picture of. You can see it at the center of the LCD screen if you oh. look very closely. This is going to be like dead air while we all just... <laughs> see, now I'm imagining I can see it. Well, it's like, it's so faint that you can sort of... It's almost at the border of being able to imagine it versus not imagine it. If, if you're at home, go go stare at the sky and and imagine seeing two blue dots and two yellow sort of smudges. And that's Haydinger's brush. Yeah. Which is about the polarization of light. Well, the point... That's weird. The point here is that, that cancer cells apparently polarize light slightly differently to huh. normal cells. And while the human eye can't readily distinguish between unpolarized and polarized light, the I guess the multitude of receptors that a mantis shrimp eye contains can. So they've been working on developing cameras for endoscopies and things that actually make use of this same sort of structures that can distinguish between polarized and non-polarized light so that they can see cancer see, before my- it's actually... A big tumor. Yeah. So my first thought with that was to train the mantis shrimp to cut out the cancers with their little nasty <laughs> claw grabbies. I mean, look, let's let's TM TM TM. That's us. Yep. That's ours. Okay. That's a fuzzy logic. Mantis shrimp trainers. Yeah, that's our patent now. Yeah. Gonna... <laughs> no one else is allowed to train mantis shrimp to be cancer surgeons. Oh god. That's just us. Wow. Oh, it's called pornography, actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, man. On that note. Does anyone have anything else they want to contribute? <laughs> Blue wrens, which you'll see a lot of around Canberra. The best birds ever. They, the best dinosaurs they ever. They pretty much are the best. They, yeah, they definitely yeah. are the best birds ever. The coloration, the intensity of the blue coloration is associated with the levels of testosterone that they've got in their system. And 
the higher their testosterone levels, the more, and this is a common pattern in a lot of uh, species, is the more susceptible they are to various diseases and things like that. So the one that has innately the best immune system can tolerate having a high level of testosterone, higher being brighter blue, and gets the most ladies. Wow. So it's literally like, look how good I am. Look how much I can wreck myself. Exactly. Wow. There's no correlations with that in uh, humans at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I think think on that note, we probably have to... To wrap up here at, here at Fuzzy Logic, we've been talking about colour and light and... Fifty Shades of Blue. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're interested in seeing more sort of beautiful colour tricks in nature, uh, I'm going to tweet out from the Fuzzy Logic account uh, a YouTube video of a panther chameleon, which is a chameleon, not a panther, but it's a type mm-hmm. of chameleon, uh, just hanging out on a branch and changing colour. And it's the most otherworldly and insane thing I've ever seen. Uh, it's basically this chameleon using the same sort of iridescence. It's a structural color thing, so it's changing the gaps between the nanocrystals that make up the layers of its skin, uh, and it can do that, I guess, voluntarily and, and change from this really deep, beautiful blue to bright yellow. Uh, it's a really, really nice video. So, yeah, if you want to see that amazing video of the chameleon, uh, follow us. We're at Fuzzy Logic Psy. That's Fuzzy Logic, and then the first bit of the word science, S-C-I. Fuzzy Logic Sci on Twitter. Uh, I'll tweet that video out, so have a look for that. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. We will be back same time next weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until then, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Yeah, cheers, guys. Have a good weekend.